Secure Financial Advisors, a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full informed investment decision. This is your money, your wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMV. Now, here's Joe Anderson and Big Al Clopine. Hey, welcome back to the show. The show's called Your Money or Wealth. Joe Anderson here, certified financial planner. I'm with Bobby Gabari today. He's a certified financial planner, uh, director of institutional advisory at Pure Financial Advisors. Go to the website purefinancial.com. Uh, get a lot of information there, too. Stick around. Next segment, uh, Larry Swedro will be on board. If you haven't um, heard of Larry, I would highly encourage you uh, to look him up. He does blogs all over the place, uh, etf.com, mutualfund.com. Uh, Market Watch, and he's written 14 books on investing. Uh, so, highly, highly intelligent man. His company, BAM, is out of St. Louis, mm-hmm. and one of the largest registered investment advisory in the country f- right? firms here in the country. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and we share uh, the same investment philosophy, which we believe is the only way to invest is based on academic research versus gut feeling. Someone's opinion. Yeah, and it's funny because it was several years ago now. I read a lot of articles and things like that, and then I kept on running into Larry Swedro, Larry Swedro, Larry Swedro. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to call this guy. <laughs> so, hey, Mr. Swedro, uh, this is Joe Anderson. Um, I do a radio show in San Diego. Would you ever consider... You know, coming on my program, he's like, "Well, what? Uh, let's talk about it." Yeah, what's your investment philosophy? Exactly. <laughs> and I said, "No, I, I've read all your books, you know, and oh well, if that's the case, you know, if we're flying on the same side as the angels, <laughs> so um, I would love to come on." So that was. I don't know, five years ago, probably he's been on the show, probably the last five, five years. years. We I'm... try to get him on at least, you know, every other month, something like that, just a um... little insight into markets and how things are moving. Yeah, so stick around. Um, excited to have Larry on. He's, he hasn't been on uh, probably for, uh, I don't know, maybe it's been a month. Who knows? But hey, what I want to get into now, we um, before we get Larry on, is that I want to get into these emails. Uh, Advisor Insights, Investopedia. If you ever go to there, um, Investopedia. Dot com. They send me all these emails and they say here uh, below um, are a bunch of questions that are submitted by investors within your area of expertise. So what I do is then I answer them on air and then I have people at the office transcribe what we've answered on the air and then we send it back to Investopedia. So um, because these questions are very common, and I'm sure a lot of you have these same questions. So uh, let's dive in. So the title of this email is, can I roll my ex-husband's 401k into an IRA and withdraw the funds I need? So here's the actual email. My husband will be giving me a portion of his 401k as per our divorce settlement. I would like to use a portion of it to pay off a small debt. Should I roll the monies into an IRA and then withdraw the amount I need? Or is there another way to do this and avoid huge penalties? All right, so that's the question. Yes, I mean, within the divorce decree, right, it's called a quadro. 
basically, is that then you split the 401k account, and so half of the husbands, or de depending on the divorce decree, of course, would go to the spouse. And yeah, you could roll that into an individual retirement account. But then the question is, can I, I need to pay some debts off. Well, first of all, I don't know how old this individual is. If you're under 59 and a half, the rules still apply. You cannot take money out of a, uh, an IRA um, to avoid a 10% penalty. So you would have a 10% penalty if you took those dollars out of that account. You could do a 72T tax election, which is a way to avoid the 10% penalty. And what that is is a separate equal periodic payment. So you would have to take the same amount of money out of the account each year for five years or until you turn 59 and a half, whichever is longer. Uh, but then there's three ways to calculate that. And let's say if you just had a small amount just to pay off some debt, uh, you would have to continue to take those payments for five years or 59 and a half, whichever is longer. So if you're 50, you would have to take it out until 59 and a half. So that could deplete the overall account depending on you know, how much money that you take out. Well, no, it wouldn't deplete the account because it's based on life expectancy. So uh, it, it, that, that's probably not the way to go. So you would probably want to look for other sources to pay off a small debt versus a retirement account. The retirement accounts are for retirement, sure, not to pay off debt. And I understand going through divorce, there's a lot of different things that happen and there's debts and there's, you know, heartaches and there's all sorts of, you know, ugly things that happen with divorce, but yes, you have that money, you could roll the money into an IRA. Uh, if you kept it in the 401k through the quadro depends on the age of the husband. No, I'm just trying to think out loud. I would not touch the money, I guess is my final answer um, when it comes to that. Well, and I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, the other thing to consider is the tax implications, right? If you take Yeah, well, you got 10% plus tax. Right. So, yeah, I thought that was a given. Okay. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> very, so some people aren't, you know, very might not good, be aware. Very good point. All right, here's another one, real quick. Uh, my brother passed away. And I'm the beneficiary of his 401k. Where is the best place for me to put the funds? Can I roll it over to another 401k plan? Great question. And we see this often and there's huge mistakes that happen when it comes to inherited accounts. An inherited retirement account, IRA, 401k, or any other account, is that you have to keep it in the deceased's name. All right, that's a big thing here. You cannot roll that money into your own 401k plan. Even though you're the owner of the account now, you're the beneficial owner, it's different. Retirement plans are different than any other type of asset if you inherit it because it's, it's filled with tax. So what happens, what the IRS wants to have happen when you inherit a retirement account is that they wanna distribute those dollars out sooner than later, right? Right now there's something that's called the stretch IRA that allows you to continue to defer most of the taxes, but you have to take a required distribution based on your life expectancy. So when you inherit that account, you have to start taking a required distribution on your life expectancy the following year. If there was not, it depends on the age of the overall individual. If the individual was over 70 and a half, you have to make sure that that person took their required distribution that year that would be based on the deceased life expectancy. But then thereafter, you could then recalculate the required distribution. Do not roll it into your own account because the IRS will see that as a full distribution. 
fully taxable, 100% of whatever that account is. And then if you put that into a retirement account, then you have other issues because that's an excess contribution. Then that is, that's a 6% penalty per year that the money's in there. So no, you keep it in the decedent's name. So who, your brother died for the benefit of you. Keep it in, you could keep it in the 401k account if you choose to. There's benefits of an inherited 401k versus an inherited IRA because you can convert an inherited 401k into a Roth IRA if you choose to. With an inherited IRA, that could not be converted to a Roth. So there's pros and cons to each of the different things that you look at. So keep it in the brother's name for the benefit of you. The titling needs to change, right? That's how the titling should look. So your brother, passed away so it's your brother's name for the uh, and then the date of the uh, when he uh, died so deceased on whatever date for the benefit of you then now you have full access to those dollars you can rearrange or do whatever that you want with it but just know that you have to take a required distribution do not roll that money into your own 401k all right i think we got time uh for one more let's see i have a 457 account which uses target date funds should I follow the target date portfolio exactly as it's set up? Also, should I consider opening a 401k in addition to the 457? I wish they would kind of give us a little bit more than this. All right, so pros and cons of target date funds. Bobby, go. You know, I think target date funds are a good general start. Uh, I think they oversimplify this idea of, uh, of risk and return, essentially being based on your age, right? So how a target date fund works is as you get older, there's typically a date on that target date fund, 2020, 2025, that's your retirement date. And what the funds do is go from stocks to less risky assets like bonds through time as you get closer to your retirement. And I think that's a fine first step. Uh, it, it, it's, it's too simplified in our opinion, right? Retirement planning has a lot of different moving pieces, a lot of different risk factors. Target date is a good start, but um, I think you can do better. Yeah, I think it depends on how much assets that you have. Sure. You know, if you got a couple hundred thousand dollars, yeah, then I think target date Plug funds is a good start. And, and if you're accumulating wealth, you know, then it's uh, autopilot. But if you want to get a little bit more sophisticated, try to capture returns in different areas of the overall marketplace, um, you know, maybe having your own diversified portfolio um, in setting up your own risk tolerance based on how much money that you believe that should be in stocks and bonds versus kind of an algorithm that they have. And guess what? These target date funds, you could go to Fidelity versus Vanguard versus T. Rowe Price in the 2025, you know, and, uh, you know, you're searching for that 2025 target date, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're all going to have a little bit different mix. And what they're trying to do is increase the risk to increase the return because individuals that usually use target date funds will look at past performance and they will pick the target date fund that has the highest return in the past. That doesn't necessarily mean a good thing for you. That just means that you have more risk in the overall target date fund. So yeah, should you add a 401k to that? If you can afford it, by all means. You want to make sure that you maximize all savings accounts that's available to you. All right. Those are the email bags. If we have time by the end of the show, we'll answer a couple more. Uh, but right now, I got Larry Swedro on hold and I do not want to put that man on hold. So take, um, we're going to take a break and we'll be back in just a second. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. This is Your Money, Your Wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Hey, welcome back to the show. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson here, certified financial planner alongside uh, Bobby Gabari today, filling in for Big Al. Uh, got Larry Swedro, good friend Larry Swedro on the line. Uh, Larry, welcome back. It's been a month and a half, and I tell you what, there's been more news in the last month and a half than I think uh, probably the whole year in general with this whole Brexit and everything else in between. 
Well, Joe, that just shows how short our memories are. You're just susceptible to everybody, <laughs> as everybody else is, to recency because you forget how in February, maybe, how the markets had collapsed then and there was plenty of news. But, yeah, we certainly have had more than our share fair news in the last month. Yeah, I love it. Five seconds in, Larry's already kind of telling me how... <laughs> that I'm kind of an idiot. So. Now you know how I feel. <laughs> hey, so um, Larry and I were talking before the break, and um, it's kind of a weird environment that we're in with stock prices and, and, and given interest rates. I mean, interest rates are what? At all-time lows? What's the 10-year treasury? A, a, a point and a half? And we got all, pretty, high, pretty high valuations when it comes to stocks. Yeah, we have uh, one uh, all-time lows uh, for the 10-year treasury. Uh, currently, it's about 136, so uh, setting records. And even the 30-year, believe it or not, is down to 2.1%. And so, uh, and along with that, we have very high historical stock valuations, at least in the U.S., uh, the, what's called the Schiller Cyclically Adjusted Price-Earnings Ratio, or the CAPE-10, uh, is at a level of 26, uh, which is way above the historical average of 17, and that's the best predictor we have of future expected returns. So I'll just do a little quick math for your listeners, Joe. Uh, historically, stocks, both international and U.S., got 10. Bonds, about 5.5. So a typical 60-40 portfolio would have gotten you somewhere in the neighborhood of 8%. Well, today, uh, with the Schiller Cape 10 at 26, that projects to roughly a 4% expected real return to U.S. stocks because you take the inverse of the P.E. gives you an earnings yield. So let's just round it and call it 4%. Uh, add 2% maybe for inflation, you're at 6 And if you have an average bond portfolio of five years, today the five-year Treasury is 1%. So if you're a U.S. investor and getting 60% of your portfolio going to return 6% and 40% going to return 1%, boy, you know, you're talking about a 4% return, which is half the nominal, uh, 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 you know, uh, return that uh, the typical 60-40 portfolio has earned over the last 90 years. So. Uh, that's a real problem for many investors who make the mistake of relying on historical returns. They're likely to end up alive with no money. Looking at all-time low treasury yields, help our listeners figure out what the heck is going on and, and why do you believe that now is the time where you know it's we, we hit this historical mark? Well, uh, clearly there are problems in the global economy. The credit markets are telling us a different story than the stock markets. They think that economic growth is very weak and likely to continue to be very weak. Uh, the stock market, on the other hand, at least in the U.S., where valuations are high, you know, one assumes then that the market thinks growth is going to be somewhat reasonable. In my experience of 40 years, whenever you have that disconnect, it's much more likely to be true that the bond market is the correct forecaster. And the reason is the bond market is dominated by institutional investors where individuals can still drive stock prices. Uh, and what's happened here is the exceptionally low level of interest rates all around the globe 
uh, and with negative interest rates in Europe, they're all flocking here to buy U.S. Treasuries as well, driving our rates lower than they would be otherwise. Uh, what you've got is individual investors, particularly those who make the mistake of being what I call a cash flow investor. So they try to live off their interest income and dividends instead of a total return approach, which uh, I know you and I follow and recommend for our clients. You know, those investors are saying, my God, I can't live on a 1% yield on my five-year you know, bonds. Uh, so they're stretching and taking a lot more risks than they should buying things like dividend-paying stocks, junk bonds, preferred stocks I see uh, you know, people flooding to. And they forget that all of those things, if we get another bad economic event like we had in 2008, will collapse. All of them fell 25 to 50, 60 percent or even more in the case of things like emerging market bonds. So I'm very concerned that investors are losing discipline and the Federal Reserve has thrown the savers under the bus in their efforts to try to stimulate the economy, which have not been successful, by the way. Hey, I think you bring up a, a great point where, and, you know, with the individual investors in our clients is looking at, well, why would I ever invest in bonds when you don't receive any yield? There's no income. So they're taking on way more risk then I think they they realize until something's going to happen. Uh, exactly. You know, the strategy of, say, replacing dividend, uh, sorry, uh, replacing safe bonds. Uh, today you can buy a 10-year CD at about 2.3%. That's a lot better than a 10-year treasury at 1.36. So, but still not great and tough for many people to live on. Certainly they didn't plan on rates being that low. So then they go and buy things like REITs, which have higher yields, or utility stocks, or junk bonds, preferred stocks, etc., not realizing that those things are highly risky when the risk shows up. So it's like throwing pennies in front of a steamroller. You know, you can keep running out and picking up those pennies, you know, 99 times out of 100, you're safe, and then one time you slip and your shoelace gets caught and you're you know, steam rolled over and you're gone. And that's what exactly what can happen to these investors who are making these mistakes. Uh, I've written a piece just the other day because I had a lot of people calling me about preferred stocks. And I pointed out how miserably they did. Well, safe bonds were going up 15, 20% in 08, depending upon maturity. These things were dropping 25%. Uh, in that same period. So they underperformed by almost 50%. And so people are stretching for a few more percent of yield while taking on that massive risk. What they need to understand, our bonds are not for return. They are to dampen the risk of the overall portfolio to an acceptable level. And if you want or need higher returns, take it in equities and shift your equity allocation, say, away from the U.S., where the expected real return is about 4% because the K-10 is 26. You can get in the non-U.S. developed markets closer to about a 7% expected real return. So add inflation to that, and you're up to, say, 9 by investing in those countries because the K-10 is roughly uh, 16 or so. Uh, and in emerging markets, 
the Cape 10 is about 12 and a half or so, uh, maybe even a bit less. That gives you an expected real return closer to 9% before inflation. Um, so, you know, you're up in 11 or something like that after uh, considering them, you know, uh, as a nominal return. That's way more than the U.S. is. So there are alternatives, and, of course, you can also tilt to more small and value stocks. You know, I think you bring up a good point, and we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want to um, quiz you, Larry, or ask you, um, you know, we got this election coming up. And I'm sure you're getting a lot of questions. Should I stay on the sidelines until we figure it out, or should we load up, or what should we do? So I want to get your opinion on what our listeners should do, given this kind of unusual um, election uh, cycle that we're kind of in this year. So don't go anywhere. We're talking to Larry Swedrow. show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. We'll be back in just a second. Now back to Your Money, Your Wealth on Talk Radio 760 AFMB. All right, welcome back to the show, folks. Show's called Your Money or Wealth. Joe Anderson here. I'm uh, hanging out with Bobby Gabaris, and uh, our good friend Larry Swedrow is online. Um, hey, Larry, what, what do you feel about this election? It's a, a little unorthodox, to say the least. Yeah, uh, and I generally stay away from politics, On uh, so I'll just make one comment, but I do have uh, some insights that can be very helpful and help your listeners avoid mistakes. I think the Republicans have nominated the only person who could possibly lose to Hillary Clinton, and the Democrats have nominated the only person who could possibly lose to Donald Trump. So that, that's my one comment about the upcoming election. But here's whatever your political views are, I think it's important that you hear this message. What the academic research shows is the following. When the party you favor is in power, you earn higher returns than the people from the opposing parties. Now, you might wonder why that's the case, uh, that, for example, uh, in 2000 to 2008, I would tell you that Republicans were better investors, earned higher returns than Democrats. And in, from 2008 through 2016, then Democrats earned higher returns than Republicans. And I have my own anecdotal evidence to support it, but there's actually academic research. And I'm wondering, Joe, if you can tell us what you think the answer is, yeah. why that's true. Well, here's my guess, is this, is that let's say if, if uh, my party's in office, I probably feel more confident within the overall party, so I believe that the economy is going to be stronger, so I might have a little bit more discipline. Yeah, Bobby, give the man a gold star. Pull it out. That's exactly <laughs> the case. Uh, and for your listeners, I didn't prep uh, him with that. So, uh, uh, but that's true. What happens is under George Bush after 9-1-1, Republicans were more likely to believe that we would get out of that crisis uh, in a way that would be positive, and they therefore were less susceptible to uh, panic selling. And in the 08 crisis, the reverse was true. I can tell you, Joe, and I'm wondering you can, you know, uh, let me know your your own experiences. But I can literally tell you that every single person I spoke to in 08 and 09 that was calling, worried, and was likely to panic sell was a Republican who was convinced that the Obama administration would push us into the next Great Depression. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, yeah, right before the election, it's like, okay, well, who gets elected and 
more Republicans were, you know, wanting to go into um, or, or do something different with their overall portfolio in case a Democrat was going to be um, uh, elected into office. Absolutely. That's exactly what I saw, and I saw the reverse in 2002. So for your listeners, it's important to not let your political biases or your political views uh, influence your decision. You could be sure that Warren Buffett is not making investment decisions based upon his political views. He didn't panic and sell in 2002 just because George Bush got elected and he was a Democrat. In fact, he was a big buyer. And he didn't let the election in 08 or 09 change his views. He stuck with his discipline to be a buyer when everyone else is panic selling. So wrapping this up is that, all right, well, we have high valuations in stocks. We have all-time low interest rates. At least in the U.S. Let's be careful here. The valuations on stocks are only high relative to historical average. In international markets, they are at or below their historical averages, which means the markets think they're relatively more risky, but that translates, of course, into the lower prices, which means higher future expected returns. And, and I think that's where I was going to come to is that right now, and I'm sure you're hearing this too, Larry, is that, well, why on earth would I ever invest in international emerging market stocks? They're, I mean, there's so much bad news over there, or they're down, they lost a lot of money, and I think that's the best opportunity to buy. But they, uh, us individuals um, are emotional creatures, and we continue to do the same mistakes because of the headline noise, I believe. You're absolutely right, and let's help them by giving them a good example. Uh, Unfortunately, most, if not the 99% of individuals, are subject to recency. They remember, you know, uh, exactly the opposite of uh, the way us old folks remember. I can't remember what I had for breakfast, but I could tell you what happened 30 years ago, right? As we get older, our memories work that way, and investors would be best served if they acted that way, remembering their history and forgetting what happened in the last few weeks, months, or even years. Uh, So what they end up doing is watching what did well in the recent past and then buying high when expected returns are low, and they watch what did poorly and sell after the prices are now down and valuations are low and expected returns are high. So How does that translate? Well, over the very long term, U.S. and international stocks have pretty much same returns, and international, uh, sorry, emerging markets have higher returns. But in the last eight years, the U.S. has far outperformed. And investors think eight years is like infinity when you and I know eight years doesn't mean anything. And they ought to know that, too, because as a good example, from 2000 to 2009, The S&P returned minus 1% a year, lost roughly 9% over the period. So, But that didn't mean you should abandon stocks. But the last eight years, international has underperformed, so they want to abandon it. So let me throw this question out, and you obviously uh, are a highly knowledgeable investor. Uh, For the the five-year period uh, that preceded this most recent period, so 2003, through 2007, the S&P 500 did very well, much better than historical averages. It returned something like 84%. How much did the DFA Emerging Market Value Fund return in that same five-year period? 
Well, I know over the 10-year period, um, it was well over 200%. Um, so um, I don't know over that five-year period. Take a guess. Well, well, let's, Bobby, what do you got? You got nothing. I'll d- Can't go to that computer now, Bobby. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> okay, <gee. laughs> yeah. I'm going to say uh, if the U.S. did 80% over that five-year period, uh, emerging markets, I know the emerging markets did very well over the 10-year period, so I'm going to say, I don't know, 100%. All right, so the emerging market value funds for 2003 through seven was up 545%. We're a little short there. <laughs> the point of the story is this, right? When, why did they do so well? Because the valuations at the end of '02 were incredibly mm-hmm. low and the world didn't collapse and valuations back went up and people forget that. On the other hand, your clients, I'm sure, were benefiting because in '03. You would have been rebalancing because they had underperformed and bought them. And then over the next five years, you would have been taking some of those chips off the table. So even though they didn't do so well, you already had those big profits and actually sold some and actually lost less. Now you want to be buying more because everyone else is dumping this stuff. It Clearly, it makes no sense to buy high in 07 because they did great, and that's exactly what happened. Money was flowing in, chasing those returns. Now those same people who bought high when expected returns were lower are panicking and selling exactly at the wrong time, and that's why Warren Buffett says once you have ordinary intelligence, and he means an IQ of like 80, <laughs> you know, it is those who get good results, it doesn't have anything to do with intelligence. It has to do with discipline and sticking to your plan. Hey, Larry, let me ask you a really quick question here. So on the flip side of that coin, you said U.S. valuations, Schiller P.E. ratios are really high now. So does that make a case or an argument to underweight U.S. stocks? No, I wouldn't do it that way. Uh, what I would try to do is get people to at least globally market cap weight. So the U.S. today is roughly 50% of the global market cap. Uh, the average U.S. investor only has 10% international when they should have 50. Uh, so I try to push people to get as close as they can to 50%. And if they do that, they will raise their expected return quite a bit. Uh, what's important to understand is this. The high valuations in the U.S. do not mean that stocks are overvalued. It means that the market thinks they're relatively safe, uh, and at least compared to international stocks, so you get a low expected return. Uh, international markets, don't. it doesn't mean they're cheap uh, and that they're a good buy in that sense of cheap. It means they're cheap because people think they're risky and you have higher expected returns. But it does mean this. If you want higher expected returns, the place you should be looking is international and especially emerging markets, not putting your money into U.S. dividend-paying stocks or utilities or REITs. In fact, REITs are probably about the worst possible asset class now for investors to look at. And the reason is simple. The way you forecast REIT returns is this. You take the current dividend yield, which I think is about down to as low as 3.25%, And then you have to either add or subtract the historical real growth in earnings. And while stocks in general, real earnings grow at about 2% a year, the real growth in REIT earnings is minus 2%. 
So basically, and actually it's been closer to minus three over the last 50 years, so your expected real return is, is lower than it is on CDs. Yeah, REITs, to me, are the riskiest investments, or at least among them right now, as you can get a higher expected return by investing in a 10-year CD with a hell of a lot less risk. Larry, I know you got to run. Uh, thank you. Great information. Uh, we will talk to Larry again uh, real soon. we got to take a break. show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Now back to Your Money, Your Wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Hey, welcome back to the program. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson, certified financial planner. Bobby Gavari is hanging out with me today. He's a certified financial planner as well. Go to our website at purefinancial.com. Um, more importantly, check out the, the podcast. Um, if you missed the interview that we just had with Larry Swedrow, go to the podcast at iTunes.com, and then you can download or you can subscribe or whatever that you choose to do uh, with that podcast. <laughs> you might just want to listen to that one quick segment and delete. <laughs> but uh, great insight. Yeah. When we listen to Larry, I mean, I think he brings a great overall perspective, uh, not necessarily about selling his firm or anybody else, but just how to think about markets, how to approach markets in a prudent fashion. I know a lot of you listeners are thinking, all right, well, you know, the U.S. has done pretty well. I don't want to go international or emerging markets, you know, but that's where expected returns are the highest right now. The, the, the simple thing to always remember is when prices are low, expected returns are higher, right? And, and people do the opposite. So when things are down, you actually want to probably buy more. Yeah, most definitely. So uh, if, like I said, if you missed any of that interview, go to our website if you'd like at purefinancial.com or uh, just subscribe to our podcast at Your Money, Your Wealth. Um, right there on iTunes. Hey, we got a few minutes, Bobby, and there's a lot more emails um, that I have here. And I haven't read any of these, um, so we could get stumped or or not. Let's take a crack at it. We have two years left. Um, so I guess to preface this is that um, Investopedia, they send me a bunch of questions by investors. Um, and so what I like to do on the show is just see if, see if we can answer them. Sure. All right. Uh, so here's, here's an email. We have uh, two years left on our current mortgage. All right? Our house is in a good location and has a strong school district. Our child is going off to college in four years. In the last six years, we have recovered from several job losses and bad credit. We are in our late 40s. My husband wants a bigger house, but at this stage in our lives, I think it's not a good idea. Should we buy a new house? Hmm. Well, I think you answered your own question, <laughs> right? So if you have careers or jobs that are not necessarily stable or that you just went through a turbulent time, and I like how she said my husband, right? because women are such better financially. Always. Better investors. Better yeah. investors, right. right? They're better planners. Um, but, and this is proof right Perfect here. Perfect example. Is that the husband's like, honey. Let's get a bigger house. Let's do this. Hey, I, I got a job. Six months. It's paying well. Let's roll it out. Let's yeah. do this. <laughs> you know, if you like your house, it's in a good location, right? You got what? Let's see. We have two years left on our current mortgage. Then you're debt free. You're that's only in your I mean, your late forties in this stage in your life. I mean, that's young still. Debt free. That's a nice place to be. Right. Then you can take all the excess capital that you want. Um, make sure that you get out of debt. You have bad credit. It sounds like, as you said. I mean, so what kind of interest rate would you get? Right. My opinion is. 
I would just stay where you're at. I, I think the grass is always greener on the other side. And then, yeah, you get the nicer house, but then you get a bigger mortgage and then you got more bills. And then all of a sudden you lose your job then you lose the house and then you lose all the equity that you just worked, you know, your tail off to pay down the mortgage. I don't know. All right. Let's see. Here's another one. All right. I am 62 and planning to continue working until 70 to maximize my Social Security. I'll be receiving a pension as well. The company that is providing my pension is giving me the opportunity to roll the funds into an IRA. My option is for a monthly pension of approximately $530 or a rollover amount of $88,000. I'm a disciplined investor and have an age-appropriate, well-balanced portfolio. I have consistently equaled or beat the S&P index with my investment mix. I am leaning to rolling over the pension, but would like a second opinion. You know, there's potentially risk on both sides. You roll that into a lump sum, you invest poorly, and that's, you know, you can lose a, a big chunk of those assets. So this is a good example of overconfidence right? as well, right? It's like, okay, well, here, I've consistently beat the S&P 500. Well, what's the mix? If you're consistently beating the S&P 500, you're probably taking on more risk than the S&P 500. Would that be a fair assessment? I would think so. You got to you got to somehow I mean how how else are you beating the S&P 500? Is it stock selection? And if it is, you're taking more risk. If you're investing in smaller emerging markets, you're taking more risk. So, you know, again going back to this notion of apples to apples comparison, how are you beating the S&P 500 and making sure you're taking the appropriate risk doing so? Taking the pension stream, you know, that that could supply you the income, especially if you have longevity, uh, that, that could last for a lifetime, right? So there's pros and cons to both sides. One of the things that you want to look at is that distribution amount, the dollar amount relative to the lump sum, and see what sort of distribution percentage that is. So then you have to take a look, too, at the company, right? Is, sure. So is the company strong? Because what what's five, 530 bucks a month, that's $6,400 a year, roughly. So do you think that you can produce more income from the $88,000? Can you receive a higher rate of return or an income stream off of 6,300 bucks, right? So that's another question. Right. Is, so the, 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 the income stream for the most part should be guaranteed. Like you said, it depends on the health of the company to a certain extent. So if you look at the 4% rule on 88,000, what's that about 3500 bucks? Mm -hmm. 4% of 88, right? So close to that, that. Yeah, in that ballpark. So the pension's giving you almost twice that. So the pension amount, if you look at it from that angle, Might I don't know, be a little it, safer it's safer bet there. You're 62. Um, if you invest it, what target rate of return that you think that you can get from 62 to age 70 and then from there is that going to you know, provide you the, uh, higher income than what the pension is going to guarantee you potentially. And I, you know, I also think the other question is, well, what are your living expenses, right? Do you need that monthly income being forced out to you or you don't? You right. Know? Yeah. And then if you're fine with the, the Social Security, all right, well, then, yeah, maybe you roll it over, right? And then you continue to invest that so that you don't necessarily need to touch that money until maybe you're 80. Right. And then at that point, that's probably a better deal. Sure. Because you don't necessarily need that income. So there's different variables there to consider. It's not very clear cut. It's yeah, And I wish it was. But I mean, if you could imagine a retirement plan that was no longer just about a number, right? Or just about your investments. Imagine if you could fill in all the gaps and have all the answers to a rock solid retirement game plan that covered everything from A to Z. Imagine what kind of confidence that would bring. 
All right, that's it for us today. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. Uh, I want to thank Bobby Gavari uh, for filling in for Big Al while he is vacationing in Hawaii. Uh, he'll be back next week. So uh, join us again. Same time, same place. For Bobby Gavari, I'm Joe Anderson. Have a great weekend, everyone. You just listened to Your Money, Your Wealth.